0: This is Mark Mufsesi, and I'm the co-director of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's, and I'm joined by the center's other co-director, Mark DiGirolami, for another episode of Legal Spirits, which is our podcast series on cases and issues in law and religion. You can find past episodes archived on our website, lawandreligionforum.org, that's one word, lawandreligionforum.org, And you can also find it on Apple iTunes and uh, the Google site, and actually now on Spotify and a lot of other sites as well. Uh, Well, normally on Legal Spirits, we talk about contemporary issues, and there certainly are a lot of contemporary issues to discuss, but in this episode, we're going to do something a little different. Um, We're going to look backwards uh, a long way back, uh, about 400 years back, uh, because we'd like to, in this episode, talk about Shakespeare's great play, The Merchant of Venice, and specifically the legal themes in The Merchant of Venice. And the the immediate impetus for this is the fact that we had our center's reading group meet last week, and we discussed this play, and the students and uh, alums who came had really great interventions and comments, and so uh, Mark and I thought maybe we should uh, record some of these and and share them with, uh, with our audience.
1: Yeah, it was a wonderful event, and uh, this is part of our ongoing uh, reading society at the Center for Law and Religion for Saint John's students. We've done Antigone, we've done uh, City of God, now Merchant of Venice, uh, and we've got other great programs, great um, uh, pieces of literature, and and uh, and other uh, pieces of writing involving law and religion uh, coming up in the in the in the semesters in next semester and the semesters that follow. So it's been a great success, and we thought we would bring some of this. Uh, to a broader audience.
0: Yes, Margaret has been a great success. It's really been a wonderful uh, experience having this reading group. I'm glad we I'm glad we have it now. Well, um, Merchant of Venice is is probably the play that most lawyers would name uh, if you ask them to identify what is Shakespeare's great play about law.
1: In fact, yeah, I did a a Twitter poll, one of these uh, very scientifically accurate Twitter polls (laughs) um, uh, asking which is the greatest play about law that Shakespeare wrote, um, and the the candidates were Measure for Measure, Merchant of Venice, uh, King John, uh, which is a perhaps somewhat lesser known play, or or something else. And I think uh, Merchant of Venice came out on top, Mark. I think that that was the that was the final count with uh, 30 some odd votes.
0: Well, you know, Mark, lawyers are fascinated by this play. Um, You know, there are symposia dedicated to this every now and then. Every few years, there's a high-level moot court involving a Supreme Court justice where they try this case again, and and courts cite the case repeatedly. You know, so so lawyers are really fascinated. And although there are a lot of themes in Merchant of Venice, law is a big one. So it's certainly appropriate to talk about it. Um, As I think we'll explore in this podcast, the irony is that as a legal matter, the play is preposterous. I mean, the central legal debate that sets the whole plot in motion is absurd. Uh, as we'll talk about. And of course, there are also a lot of ugly things in the play. I mean, we don't want to minimize that. There's there's a lot of language that would today be considered offensive and ugly, but it's a very important play nonetheless because of these legal themes and notwithstanding the absurdity of the legal device in the plot. We'll, we'll talk about that and we'll maybe reflect a little bit about what it says about our current state uh, in America today. Okay, I think most people know the play, but let me just start off with a little bit of a plot refresher. So at the beginning of the play, Bassanio, who is a, a Venetian, wants to woo the fabulously wealthy Portia, who lives in Belmont. But Bassanio doesn't have money and he doesn't have credit. And so he asks his friend Antonio to borrow money for him from the Jewish money lender, Shylock. And Antonio and Shylock hate each other, right? I think that's fair to say, Mark.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. They don't they don't like one another at all for for a variety of reasons, some kind of obvious reasons. uh, You know, Antonio has mistreated and humiliated Shylock, but also some reasons that kind of go to the deeper themes, I think, that we're going to be discussing, which is that Antonio has uh, rescued debtors from Shylock's uh, from 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 debt to Shylock and therefore has hurt Shylock's business right? Shylock has not been able to uh, collect as much as he uh, would, would, would have been able to collect without that help. Um, And Antonio hates Shylock. Also, Uh, again, uh, the the easy answer, the easy answer about why is just because of the anti-Semitism that was prevalent at the time, um, uh, and that that Antonio also shares in. But he also hates Shylock because Shylock charges money uh, at interest on on his loans, which which is sinful in, in Christian understanding. So maybe, Mark, let's take a moment and, and talk a little bit about, about usury, right? The sin of usury. You want to say a little bit about that?
0: Yes, because that's central to the play. I mean, as you say, one of the reasons Antonio is so contemptuous of Shylock is that Shylock charges interest on loans, which Antonio, as a Christian, says that he condemns. Now, this is the first of the absurdities uh, in the play, which is, you know, I went back and I read Harold Berman's Law and Revolution, and I was correct in what I remembered and what I said at the reading group, which is by Shakespeare's time, both canon law and the law merchant allowed the charging of interest on loans. Usury was considered the charging of excessive interest. That was the sin. So the first kind of absurdity here is the idea that Christians would be objecting on religious grounds to interest at this time,
1: right? No, I think that's that's uh, true. Um, you know, every, anytime you rely on a weasel word like excessive, uh, <laughs> you, you, you get to a situation like what we have today with payday loans and and so on, right? That you know, those seem to be okay too. But yes, I think it's it's probably true. Even though it is interesting, I think that in all these major and all the, or at least many of the major religious traditions. Um, usury um, as a practice, at least the excessiveness of usury uh, as a practice, was condemned, which is, you know, and that's that's true in Judaism as well, um, uh, not with respect to the issue of excessiveness, apparently, but with respect to whether it's appropriate to lend it interest uh, to members within the tribe um, uh, versus people outside the tribe. And in, De- in Deuteronomy, actually, there's a distinction between what's appropriate for fellow Jews uh, versus what's appropriate for Gentiles where, where usury was permitted.
0: Yeah. So I'm not an expert in that. I don't I don't I, I can't say about that. But I can say that this basic conflict in the play between the Christian who says, I cannot charge interest. It's a sin. And the Jew who says, I can charge interest. There's actually a really interesting discussion in the play where Shylock tries to justify this. Um, that that's not really a debate that's any longer going on by Shakespeare's time, at least according to Berman. Okay, so um, Shy- uh, Shylock lends money to Antonio, but the terms are sort of strange. The terms are that if Antonio cannot pay the money, then Shylock will be entitled to a pound of Antonio's flesh. And Shylock says, this is just a merry sport, right? Well, as uh, when the time comes, Antonio cannot pay Uh, and Shylock insists on his bond. He insists on um, enforcing this agreement. And this places the Venetian state in a difficult spot, right, Mark? Because Venice has people from all over the world who come to trade there, uh, and the way the play is set up, the, the conceit of the play is that all these traders are in Venice because Venice enforces contracts. And if Venice doesn't enforce this contract, abominable as it is, they will all leave and Venice will lose status and money. So Venice is in kind of a tight spot.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, Mark, And in reading the play again. It struck me that the play is less about law in the sense of, for example, what contract law is all about than about political theory or even perhaps jurisprudential theory um, in the sense of you know what, what it is that grounds or binds a particular society. And you're right to say that in Venice, And as I say, we're going to talk a little bit more about this in Venice, it was it was law, uh, contract law, uh, the law of merchants um, and the relations among merchants that was really the source of unity. Right. The source of um, what bound people together, not some of these other things, which, again, also kind of explains in an interesting way the hatred, the mutual hatred. Of uh, Antonio and Shylock, because again, it's not just a pure sort of religious hatred. It's a hatred with respect um, in the context of the baseline set by Venice about what people could and couldn't do and how they could and couldn't succeed uh, in the context of Venetian political mores and so on. So that. Yeah, please.
0: No, right, Mark. I'm sorry. And, and I was going to say, and, and you know, there's a thesis, There's a name for this. This is called the do Commerce Thesis. It is that really uh, you can bring people together from various different cultures and incompatible worldviews as long as you limit their interaction to commerce. As long as the state enforces contracts, people will trade with each other. They will cooperate with each other. They will not push their worldviews. Uh, our friend Nate Ullman has written a whole book about this, which is quite, quite interesting. That was the theory here. And this is why Venice is in such a tight spot, because everything turns on the state enforcing contracts. Okay, so we get to the the very climactic court hearing. Shylock comes, he insists on his bond. Portia, who is disguised as a, a young lawyer named Balthazar, comes in and she resolves the case. She says to Shylock, you should be merciful. And Shylock says, no, I insist on my contract. And then she springs her trap. She says, okay, you can have what your contract calls for but only what your contract calls for and not a drop of blood. And by the way, since you as an alien have threatened the life of a Venetian citizen, there's another law which says that you are now subject to the death penalty and your goods will be confiscated.
1: It's interesting. And, and even in, in between those two options, right? A you should be merciful. And of course, Shylock doesn't want to be merciful, but B she says, because there had been an offer that he would be, he could be paid triple. Triple uh, the amount that he was uh, that he was otherwise owed uh, if he agreed not to uh, not to uh, uh, insist on the pound of flesh. Um, so in that sense, they were he, he was his own self-interest was being appealed to. So and and that in some ways was the the grosser violation. Right. In other words, well, according to the to the laws or the mores of Venice, that ought to have been more attractive to him. Right. You're going to make mm-hmm. a bigger profit than you otherwise would. and And still. He refuses. He insists on what you know the law, quote unquote, entitles him to, um, and that's when she. That's when, as you say, she springs the trap, which is springs, springs the trap. Yeah.
0: Now, okay. So um, I said at the beginning this is all based on an absurdity, and I want to you know highlight that now. So uh, the first absurdity here is that Shylock's contract is enforceable. In fact, it would have been void from the beginning. Uh, as against public order. You know, the, the law at the time and the law today had this concept of, you know, contracts couldn't be enforced against public order. They couldn't be enforced against good faith. And this would certainly have been thrown out. This whole this whole dilemma that Venice is facing is, is a phony one, a phony one, uh, as is also Portia's argument, because assuming this contract were enforceable, then it would naturally entitle Shylock to whatever was incidental to its performance and certainly a drop of blood is incidental to cutting a pound of flesh so he would have been entitled to that this whole thing is a trick um don't you think mark
1: well yeah it's 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 nice to have a contracts law professor being the one that's analyzing all of these issues right because uh because you get insight you get insight you know from within the system about why this particular contract wouldn't have been enforced but i suppose Shakespeare knew this, Mark? Is that is that your view? You know, he's probably knew what was going on here. It's not like he was ignorant about the law. Yeah. I
0: think so. No, his other plays show he had a real knowledge of the law. And by the way, there's yet another reason, a third reason, which is you might have said this was not an agreement that contemplated legal enforcement. It was just kind of a joke, as as Shylock initially tells Antonio. Okay, so Shakespeare surely knew all this. So why did he do this? And I think as we discussed in our reading group and some of the students talked about this, Shakespeare has bigger fish to fry. He's not really interested in the legal conflict here. He's interested in what this conflict represents about actually a very old theological debate and also about the limits of tolerance in a a liberal society. So the first one, look, Shakespeare knew very little about Judaism, uh, apparently. He He had never met a Jew. And he presents a caricature of Judaism So, um, and he's taking sides in a very old debate, the old debate between these two great religions, Christianity and Judaism. um, Christians have always said from the beginning, from the New Testament times, that their religion is a religion of grace, as opposed to Judaism, which in the Christian telling is a religion based on righteousness under God's law. And the Christian theory is such righteousness is just not possible. And we are saved through the mercy, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And therefore, Christians need to show mercy to others. Now, as I say, this is a a caricature of Judaism, which also cares about mercy. It's a caricature of Christianity, which also cares about law. But Shakespeare is highlighting these differences, I think. He has a dramatic reason for doing so.
1: Right. And right, as you say, so Shylock on the other end is a kind of archetype, right? Um, I mean, you could say it's just as much a caricature of Judaism as it is a caricature of law, uh, right, that that you know, obey the law, perform what you promise. Well, of course, we know lawyers know that, um, you know, contract, you know, pacta sunt servanda, right? Contracts must be enforced. Well, that's a maxim and 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 it's an important one. But of course, there are exceptions. And and in practice, you know, it isn't quite so so hard edged. But in some ways, it's in the the um, the reason I say it's a jurisprudential play. Also, it's because um, you know, in jurisprudence, these ideas about formalism versus realism—again, these are archetypes or 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 sort of ideal types uh, about what the law is. Um, and even though yes, there are exceptions and so on, I think it is interesting and useful to sort of reflect on the overarching model or type because each one does have its merits. Absolutely, and you know, stands for the idea of justice: obey the law, perform what you promise and forced bargains freely made. Um, You know, and we read, as you mentioned, this uh, essay by Alan Bloom, um, uh, where where Bloom says, look, Shylock, Shylock doesn't cheat anybody. He's not he's not acting uh, um, in some ways, you know, like a, uh, you know, uh, an unscrupulous person. uh, Bloom says, quote, what he does is neither noble nor generous. But it is not unjust. In some ways, it's about the limits of justice conceived in this way. In some, yes, in some I ways. agree
0: with that, Mark. And I think we have to assume that Shakespeare understood that too. He is, as I say, he this is this. He is exaggerating the differences between these two approaches: the Christian "quote unquote" grace approach, and the and the Judaic "quote unquote" law approach. He's exaggerating it, maybe because he didn't understand Judaism. Maybe because, as a Christian, he has a he has a bias. He's presenting the Christian view of this thing but also because he has bigger points to make.
1: Yeah. And I I should mention, you know, we've been talking contract law, but these ideas about revenge, for example, revenge as a part of justice. Well, they permeate other areas of law, too, like criminal law. There are important theories of criminal punishment that emphasize revenge or a kind of revenge, you know, the sort of equalization of the victim to the uh, to the one who, uh, you know, offends against the victim's uh, dignity let's say, expressivist theories of criminal punishment. So revenge on this view is a kind of just goes back to Romans in some ways. Right. Um, Christians have mistreated and they have humiliated Shylock. They've seduced his daughter. You know, if Shylock just sort of forgives um, uh, in that context, well, then he's going to be despised and hated even more, uh, which is another point that. Right. Now, just
0: to clarify, when you say it goes back to Romans, you don't mean the book of Romans. Right. You mean to the Romans of the Roman Empire.
1: No, actually, I do Uh-oh. mean Romans. I mean the book of Romans. So the idea of of justice and what belongs to God's justice in terms of as a sort of matter of, of retribution, I do mean the uh, uh, book of Romans. So there, there, are, Romans has the most extensive uh, discussion, I think, in all of the Bible, I, I think, or at least one of the most extensive about the nature of punishment and what belongs to God's a part, and what belongs to the the part of the king, or the part of the secular authority. Okay, that's interesting
0: because I was thinking of Romans for the other point that we were making earlier, which is religion of grace as opposed to religion of of law. Right? That it is. It works there too. It works there too. Yeah. <laughs> that it is. It is impossible to be righteous by obeying God's law. It's simply impossible, and so you need to have mercy. Um, and that, as I say now, there, those distinctions may not be so great in practice between these two religions. They surely are not, but. But this is something that Shakespeare is amplifying. And so why? What's the point he wants to make? And, Mark, here, I think, is where the Alan Bloom essay was really helpful.
1: No, I agree with that. Um, you know, I, I think, um, as, you, as we've said before, right, for Elizabethans, Venice represented tolerance, right, the most tolerant city in the world and the most tolerant city in a, in a world of great religious intolerance. Um, and why, Mark? Why you know, was it
0: considered so tolerant?
1: Well, be, for, for precisely the reasons that we had talked about with respect to the issue of commerce, right? So uh, the the quote that we have here from Bloom is, quote, In this city, those men who it was generally thought could never share a common way of life seemed to live together in harmony, close quote, right? The Venice was known as la serenissima, right? The, the most serene city. Why was it serene? Because... Um, because uh, a new way of being together, a way fostered by commerce, uh, shared a shared commitment to self-interest, allowed people of very different backgrounds to come together, to live together, to trade in the same currency. Right. And that could be understood either technically or in a broader sense. you know, without without getting into fights with one another about deeper issues, the, those deeper issues could kind of be suppressed or put down or ignore in the public uh, life, um, the public political life of the city. Right,
0: and so I think that, and I get this from Bloom. I think what Shakespeare is doing in exaggerating this conflict between Shylock and Antonio is asking the question: Well, does that theory, does the theory on which the Venetian state is basing its tolerance? Does it work when the divisions are serious enough? And I think Mark Shakespeare's answer seems to be no.
1: Well, that's right, and and Bloom seems pessimistic also, right? So in this sense, as an interpreter of Shakespeare, um, you know, the view might be respect for the law, um, uh, the, the the fulfilling of contracts, um, you know, that can work when you have um, some kind of uh, at least modicum of baseline of shared assumptions and so on. But when you really get conflict uh, about these deeper questions, as in the case of Shylock and Antonio, um, it's not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough. Um, uh, and there only a kind of deeper set of common values or outlooks or or moral views, or heritage, or traditions can support a community. So this mark gets a little bit actually to some of our own projects with respect to our tradition project, for example, uh, where we thought about these kinds of questions as well. Yeah, no,
0: that's true. And both you and I have written about this. I mean, I uh, to come back to the point we were talking about at the beginning. I mean, lawyers love this play. Why do lawyers? Why are lawyers so preoccupied with *The Merchant of Venice*? And I think one answer might be it's because it shows the limits of our profession. It shows the limits of law. And you know, when when you have a debate or you have a conflict between groups with rival and incompatible worldviews, and those conflicts are deep enough, you cannot expect that law is going to be able to solve them. You know, in the end, one of the worldviews is going to prevail, and it's going to be the majority's worldview, even if that takes an obvious trick like Porsche plays in this case. You know, I think that's the kind of pessimistic lesson that is being taught us here. And I wonder if, if that isn't really why lawyers have found this place so fascinating. It shows us our limits, really.
1: So that might be one one possibility. It shows us our limits, um, but it might also be that they're fascinated with it because, um, you know, law has kind of been a replacement morality uh, when common funds of morality have been stripped away, particularly religious funds, uh, and other sorts of baselines. Uh, and when that happens, law is all that's left. And so the the question is, I mean, in some ways, it's similar to the point that you're making, but lawyers always, especially in the United States, it's lawyers that are the public intellectuals, it's lawyers on which, you know, the public's word, uh, sort of ears, they, they are the public is waiting with bated breath for what lawyers have to say, judges have to say. And yeah, so well, Tocqueville
0: on. said, Tocqueville said lawyers are America's aristocracy.
1: Exactly. Because because why? Because we've 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 destroyed all other aristocratic uh, 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 sources of of sort of authority or morality and so on. Um, and so it's almost like a, an inevitability that some other class will uh, uh, will sort of take the reins, let's say, or will assume that that role. And I do think for us, it has been law, whether law is able to actually to perform that function or whether uh, particular moral propositions are kind of smuggled in and enforced through law is is, I think, another possibility with respect to why lawyers find this playful. Yeah, well, I got to
0: think a little more, Mark, about your uh, your pro bourbon uh, uh, ideology. Here. I got <laughs> to think a little bit more about I- that.
1: I didn't I didn't say that it was wrong for America to destroy other aristocracies, but some aristocracy there will be. Yeah. Right. Um, some some group is going to is going to assume that kind of role, masked as it might be, right, masked in the clothing of some neutral proposition and so on. But and and here, I think um, I think it's undeniable that lawyers and law has this kind of status as a as a common moral denominator yeah. uh, for Americans well that is very
0: interesting Mark Mark just before we close I do want to say a couple of things about contemporary implications because I think another reason why people are fascinated with merchant uh, may be that it makes us a little uncomfortable about our own time you know we are living in a very polarized moment in America uh, in which you know people have very very different worldviews and commitments and we've always counted on law to be, as you were saying, the neutral arbiter that is going to or if not neutral law is going to be the value laden arbiter that is going to handle all this for us. And, you know, you look at a lot of cases in the Supreme Court lately uh, in the area in which we work, law and religion, um, and you see real, real conflict and, and the kind of absence of common commitment to values. And so maybe Merchant of Venice should also make us a little bit worried about what's going to go on in our country as we have these deep social divisions.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's a good point because I think Merchant and certainly Venice, you know, you know, you and I have talked about, um, a, you know, how fun it would be to do a project comparing the late Venetian Republic with the American yes. Republic. You know. especially oftentimes. if we do, especially
0: if we do on-site research.
1: Well, I think that would be very important, <laughs> right? Archival on-site research, absolutely right. Um, but but you know, the the point is not only about. Um, about the United States and what's happening here, but perhaps about liberalism, you know, liberalism also certainly classical liberalism follows a kind of strategy as as Venice did in its way on mutual self-interest to keep people together, checking passions and so on. And, you know, the principal one of those passions uh, that has to be kind of tamped down or, or not allowed to kind of bubble up is religion. Um, and so there are, I think, strong connections here uh, with respect to what Shakespeare writes about Venice to thinkers that are considered you know, really important foundational American thought like like James Madison. If you think about Madison's Federalist Ten, where Madison talks about people's zeal for different opinions concerning religion, as these are this is bad, this is faction, right? That this is a prototypical kind of faction that had to be kind of muted or tamped down as one of the common political affections that won't matter in America. Here, this is going to be a different sort of um, political community. And it might be that what we're seeing is various pressures uh, that are coming to bear on some of the assumptions that that keep republics uh, like Venice, like the United States together, that you know they may start to erode over time for a variety yeah, of reasons. Yeah. Or
0: maybe they were erosion eroding from the beginning. It may be that Americans were telling ourselves a story about this. And there were many people who were not included and uh, did not feel like they were being treated fairly and that they were being allowed to participate who were not being treated fairly and allowed to participate. And so um, maybe it's not so much that things are changing. Maybe this was kind of always there, but suppressed, and it's no longer suppressed. And so um, well, is law going to save us? Now, the the message of this play is kind of pessimistic about that. I think.
1: I agree. I agree, and and I agree also with the point that you just made that you know uh, these are kind of uh, fictions, fictions that we tell ourselves, or fictions that those in power tell themselves. This is a sort of a, a legal crit sort of point that we're mm-hmm. uh, making a little bit here. But I think it's I think there's a lot to it, and and uh, and more recent events seem to be supporting that kind of point uh, more more than they are um, um, sort of uh, evidence against Yeah. It. We,
0: we plugged our friend Nate Omen's book before. We should, on this point, plug our friend Stephen Smith's new book about, uh, about the, the legal fictions that have supported America, uh, which may no, no longer do so, which may no longer support America. I guess I'll put it that way. Uh, okay. Well, so that's a pessimistic note. We don't always end on a pessimistic note, but we have this time, but we'll be more optimistic in future podcasts. Uh, For now, this has been Mark Mavsessian and Mark DeGirolamy, the co-directors of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's, with another episode of Legal Spirits. You can find past episodes archived on our website, lawandreligionforum.org, also on Apple iTunes and Spotify and Pandora and Google and lots of other uh, streaming platforms. Okay, that's all for now. See you next time.